If you're a guest here, welcome. Uh, this is just one of the things that we like to do uh, in this place. It's, it's more than just even a, a show of reverence to the very words of God. It's, it's also like at a sporting event, you know, people stand when something exciting is going to happen. And so it's with a sense of anticipation that we're going to listen to the very voice of God. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it, and probably gulped. (laughs) On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they wanted, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is God's word. You can be seated. So as we've uh, entered Mark 11, we've also entered the last week of Jesus' life. And if you were here last week, which is uh, a, a real gift, uh, and, and, and you know that story, uh, and then you look at today's story, uh, you put these two stories together and, and you get the two sides of Jesus. Uh, in the first part of Mark 11, Jesus comes gently, humbly, on the colt of a donkey, and now in our text today, it's almost like he comes to make war, to clean house. And, and then there's that whole strange act of, of this cursing of the fig tree, uh, which, which really um, seems very strange. I mean, is Jesus just touchy? Is he edgy? Uh, but, but no, it's it's a symbolic act. It's actually a parable. It's a real-life parable that actually explains uh, Jesus' actions in the temple. But before we do uh, any looking at, at, at this event, I want to just start with the temple because this is where Jesus is going to spend a majority of the last week of his life. He's going to get up every day and make his way into the temple, and that's what he's doing uh, this day. 
I want us to get in the shoes of God's people in the first century because that temple was everything to them. It was the center of their existence. It was the center of their theology. It was the center of their worldview, of their identity, their security. It was the center of their significance. That temple is their pride and joy. This is why they simply called it the house. And for most Jews during this time, especially those who lived outside of Jerusalem, you would be lucky if you saw or visited the house one or two times a year. And if you lived way outside the land, you might get to the house a handful of times in your entire life. And they came to this place, different than even the way we come uh, this morning uh, to, to our place of worship. They came to this place knowing in their heart that only two things in the world happened in that house. First, that is the place where God made his home. It's a place where people encountered God face to face, or as God described it, he, he calls his house the place of meeting. This is where we meet together, where we encounter each other. Now, of course, they had a theology that, that God's presence filled the whole earth, uh, but in their mind, this is where God's, his Shekinah, his raw, overwhelming presence was. And so going to that house was for them, it was stepping out of the chaos and, and the mess of their world. And it was literally for them stepping into the garden of God. It was like going to heaven. Because this was a place of shalom, shalom, this place of perfect harmony, this place just bursting with joy, this place of, of rest, of perfect, perfect rest. And this is the place where Adam and Eve in their mind walked with God in the cool of the day. So imagine the anticipation to go to a place like that. Uh, this is why uh, you have the psalmist uh, describing it this way. Psalm 27, this is David. He says, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this only do I seek. Just ask yourself, could you say this today? Just one thing that you seek one thing that you ask for. David says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Or Psalm 84, you could have fun reading that uh, sometime today as well. Uh, the psalmist here says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And he ends this psalm by saying, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Man, I read something like that and I ask my own heart, does my heart uh, cry out for the courts of God in this way? One thing that I seek, one thing that I desire. And, and it's for this reason, then, that the temple was, was a house of prayer, it was a house of worship. And, and, and don't think quiet, contemplative, somber kind of prayer. Uh, we're, we're talking about corporate prayer. We're talking about corporate, passionate worship. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a stadium where all of a sudden the whole 100,000 people break out into song. I remember when I was in college and I was traveling Europe and I just by coincidence was in Berlin uh, the, the night that Berlin won the World Cup. It was eerie. I mean, literally thousands upon thousands of people throughout the whole night just passionately singing this song. That's what went on in the temple. It was thousands upon thousands of people coming to meet with God, to worship him with everything that they had. Second thing that happened in the temple, in their minds, not only is this where God lived, but this is a place of sacrifice. Because see, every Jew understood that you cannot just approach God flippantly. You can't just waltz into his presence. God is holy, holy, holy. And the psalmist said it, who who may ascend God's holy hill, but he or she who has clean hands and a pure heart. So as as, as they approached God, they they knew this this deep sense of of, of their defilement before God, this, this need for them to be made clean. And this is why they came to worship with something you didn't come with today. Every time they came to God's house, they came with a lamb. And as that innocent lamb was sacrificed, they they, they would pray to God, God, let let this lamb and let this lamb's blood, let it be for me, let let it make atonement for my sins. And see, it was then through that sacrifice that this temple became this place of forgiveness, this, this place where they were cleansed, where they were washed, where they were made clean, where they were made Whole, where all the guilt and all the shame was, was removed from their life. And so for these two reasons, the, the temple meant everything to the Jews. So when Jesus curses this fig tree, he is giving his disciples a picture about that temple. The fig tree in the Bible always represents the spiritual leadership of Israel. The vine or the vineyard represents the people of God, but it's the fig tree that represents the spiritual leader of of God's people. Now, who are the spiritual leaders uh, in Jesus' day? Well, it's those who run the temple. It's those who minister in the temple, the priests and the Levites. It's, It's they who have the official power, the institutional power. They are the fig tree. In fact, I think one of the reasons why, why God uses this metaphor to, uh, of the fig tree to represent Israel's spiritual leadership, uh, because it's a rare tree. It's a tree that bears fruit in season, but it's also a tree that bears fruit out of season. In fact, some of the, the tastiest figs uh, come uh, during that season that they'd say it's, it, it's not the prime season of, of the fig tree. And this is why Jesus is hoping to find fruit, even though it's not in season. It's because the fig tree always provides fruit. And what Jesus is showing is that the temple and its leadership has become like this fig tree. There's no fruit. 
And from the outside, it, it looks so beautiful. It, it looks so impressive. It, there's tons of activity. It's attracting thousands upon thousands of people. But inside, amongst all the busyness, it was empty. It was bankrupt. It was, it was dead. I mean, the prophet Ezekiel declared generations before Ichabod. Ichabod simply means the glory is gone. God's glory is departed. It's not here. Let me ask you a question. Is your life like this temple? Outwardly, there might be tons of religious activity and busyness, yet inwardly, if you're honest, it's all quite hollow and empty, bankrupt. There's not real connection with God. There's, there's little life of God within you. There's, there's no fruit. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 7, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, only you can answer that question. Only you right now know the condition of your heart, but we must never mock God by just going through the motions and singing our songs and listening to our sermons and all of our religious activity. When Jesus came to that fig tree, he came to it hungry. Hungry for what? He's hungry for the real thing. And this is why Jesus curses it. He, he pronounces judgment on that tree and, and then this miracle of, of destruction actually occurs so that the next day when the disciples are passing it, that's when they gulped. This is the, that, whoa. It was dead. It was withered down to its very roots. And see, this is all part of the real life parable that Jesus is telling uh, through this fig tree. I mean, that withered fig tree now uh, is, is, is foretelling the future of the temple. And we know in, through history that Rome is the one who will come in and destroy the temple, but Jesus is actually the first to make the temple obsolete and to put it out of business. And it starts right here in our text. Jesus begins the last week of his life by riding into Jerusalem. Then he walks into that temple kind of like an athlete before they're going to play a big game the next day, walk in the field and just getting a feel for it. Jesus walks into that temple. It says he looked around at everything, but it was too late. So he went home that night only to show up and it's, it's game time. And he's furious. I mean, he loses it. Look at verses 15 and 16. Just let your eyes on, that, on, on those verses. He overturned the tables, the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves. He wouldn't even allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Try to imagine that. He's dealing with people's money, <laughs> throwing it all over the place, throwing their goods and, and the things that they're selling. I'll tell you the thing that's most surprising to me when I read this is that no one stops him. 
No one takes them out. You know what this tells me? Exactly what's in this text. They are genuinely afraid of Jesus. But what we need to ask is, why is Jesus so upset? Well, the temple itself is, is, is God's idea. It was, it was God's instruction that, that, that the tent first would be built, then the house, and that he would live, as, live among his people in this. But here's the thing that we need to know. God never intended for his house to just be for his people. And that's why Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. These aren't just the words of Jesus, but these are uh, the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 56 says, In the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to God and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, those I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will give him joy in my house of prayer, and their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar." That is stunning to think about. Especially this part about their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable uh, on my altar. Does that mean that they don't even have to just stay in the confines of the Gentile court? But this whole text ends, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And see, this is what's going on. Um, When Jesus cleans house, it actually happens to be the day when when every family needed to get their Passover lamb. In fact, Josephus tells us uh, that for Passover, 250,000 lambs uh, will will be prepared, slaughtered, killed, and eaten. 250,000. Now, now some, some families would take little Junior with them. Uh, but most would just wait till they got to the temple and buy a temple lamb because the priests were, were putting heavy restrictions on the actual kind of lamb uh, that, that would only be permitted. And so the, the buying and the selling of, of these lambs and, and, and the exchange of the money, it all happened, most of it, in a particular place in God's house, the place that we call the Gentile court. And so there's no way then that, that, a, that a Gentile then, in, in the sea of all of this noise and crowds of people and animals everywhere and smells and, and, and poop on the ground, there's no way that can be a place of prayer for them. And this is why Jesus just unloads on them. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, I had to think about this this week, that statement. Jesus does not call his house a house of preaching. He does not call his house a a, a house of, of ministries and programs. He calls his house a house of prayer. Are we a house of prayer? Are we a people that just say our prayers and sing our songs, or or do we really pray? Do we really worship? Like Brett this morning with that prayer, do, do... 
Do our hearts really long for God? Do we, do, do we, do we long for his awesome presence to, to be manifest? Do we seek his face? Do we hear his voice? Are we moved? Do we weep? Do we pour out our hearts? Do we experience burdens being lifted? People getting healed? Do we experience certain attitudes changing and our character being transformed? Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. And see, Isaiah 56 isn't the only text that Jesus throws at them, but probably the one that's even more indicting is the Den of Robbers text from Jeremiah 7. In fact, uh, just listen to, to what this says, because I've always wondered, what does Den of Robbers mean? Is it talking about the marketplace and, and, and all the stuff that's going on with the buying and selling in God's house? But I don't think that's what, what Den of Robbers means in Jeremiah 7. Listen to it. Uh, God says, Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery and perjury? Will you worship Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? And then, after doing these things, come and stand before me in my house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe? That we are safe to do all of these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? You see what God's saying in Jeremiah 7? He's saying, Israel, how can you come in and worship me and then go out and lead a godless life? How can you come into this place in prayer and then cheat on your wife or mistreat your employees or close your eyes to injustice or not care for the widow or the orphan. That's what God is saying in Jeremiah 7. And again, now we're, we're back into what's wrong with the fig tree. This fig tree, it looks so good on the outside, but it bore no fruit. And the fig tree in Jesus' day, has now become a den of robbers, a den of hypocrites. And because of this, as God says later in Jeremiah 7, he says, Israel, I'll destroy my house and I will cast you out. And Jesus is, in essence, using that verse to say that as well. Sometimes I wonder if we could handle the prophets. I wonder if Jeremiah was here today and he came up and preached if we could handle the things that he would have to say to us. But again, I think this should all cause us uh, to ask this question, am I the real thing? Are we the real thing? Because God will not be mocked with hypocrisy. Now this I know. Jesus is the real thing. He is the true fig tree. He is the true temple. He is everything to which that temple points. Because as good as that temple was, 
it had served its purpose. Its greatest purpose was to point to the ultimate temple when God would once again inhabit the earth like he did in Eden, when he would walk with his people in the cool of the day where we could encounter God face to face. And Paul says about Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus. And again, I, just, I, I want us to just think about how a people for generations, how they made their way to this temple, some traveling hundreds of miles just to meet with God, a God who loves us, a God who wants to live among us. And here they would come with their lamb, with this anticipation that, that in this place of sacrifice, I'm going to be forgiven, I'm going to be made clean, I'm going to be washed of all my guilt, all my shame, I'm going to be reconciled to God. And now think about Jesus in light of all that. He is not just the temple. Not even just the place of sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God whose blood forgives, washes, purifies, removes all guilt, all shame. His blood makes us whole. In fact, all the Gospels uh, mention this little detail that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple uh, was torn in two. And, and that veil was the curtain. It was the entrance into the Holy of Holies, which was, was God's living room. It was his, where he dwelled. And, and I don't know if you know this, but, but what was actually embroidered into that curtain, that veil, were two cherubim. And the reason for these two cherubim on the veil is because when Adam and Eve uh, chose to become their own masters. They were kicked out of Eden, and God placed two cherubim with flaming swords to guard anyone going back into the garden of God. The only way in was to pass through the sword. And so these two cherubim uh, on, on the veil, on that curtain, were, were this constant reminder that the only way to really get back into Eden, to get back into God, is that we must pass through the, through the sword. But think about it. When Jesus died, that veil, it's torn in two. And God is now saying that the way into God, the way into his holy Shekinah presence and glory, it's open. And we no longer have to go through the sword. Because Jesus, the final lamb, the final sacrifice... He passed the sword. He took the justice. He paid the price. He is the true fig tree who became cursed of God, cursed to destruction, withered down to the roots so that you and I could be spared, forgiven, cleansed, made whole. And see, as good as that other temple was, people could still only just draw near to God. They could never really uh, go all the way in. Only the, ho the, the holiest man on the holiest day of the year could go into that holy place. Otherwise, everyone else just got to come near. But now because of Jesus, 
we can get behind the veil. And God says, you can come into me, and I can come into you. You know what I just said? Whether you know this or not, it's the most amazing reality there is. I mean, right now, do you know how badly you need God? How much you need his presence? How much you've been made for God? Do you know that? I mean, there's an ache in our hearts. We all have it. And that ache is, it, it, it's not for more money. It's not for more significance. It's not for more friendship. It's not for, for, for being liked by more people. It's not for more pleasure or good food or a fun vacation. The ache that we have in our heart is for God. It's, it, it's for his Shekinah. It's for his awesome presence. It's to know him. It's, it's for us to go into God and for God to come into us. And yet think about how we spend so much of our lives just striving to fill this ache with anything and everything under the sun. And yet we are not made for all the little trinkets and the trivial things of this world. We're not made for the creaturely comforts that we, we think we so much need. We were made for God. To know him. To be in him. And for God to be in us. Jesus is the real thing. The question is, are we? And I think this is why Jesus now says what he says in verses 23 through 25. Jesus says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say, it will happen and it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Those are, those are some amazing verses. And, and then he concludes, and, and if you stand praying and you hold something against someone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your offenses, your sins. Now, at first glance at this text, it's like, this just feels like some random thought that's totally disconnected from the preceding events, but here's what Jesus is actually calling his disciples to be, and that is to be the temple of God. Because think about it, in less than two months, Jesus is going to ascend to the right hand of God, and he's going to take the baton at that time. He's going to give it to his disciples, uh, and then to the church, and he's going to say to them, you are now the temple. You are now God's house on earth. And so we are to be this, this place where, where people encounter God face to face. We are to be this house of prayer. We are to be this place of forgiveness. And I know right where Jesus is when he's, when he's saying all these things. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. I know this because uh, the Bethany is, is also a part of the Mount of Olives. And, and from there, you can look and, and you can see two mountains. One is called the Herodium. Uh, 
The Herodium is, is called that because Herod built this monster palace on a hill that he literally moved, pale by pale, and then built a big palace, which was to be a monument to his greatness. In fact, Josephus, uh, the historian, writes this about Herod. He says, it's said of Herod uh, that Herod has the power to move mountains. It's, It's because of this mountain that he created and built his palace on. The other mountain that Jesus can see is the more important one, and that's what is called Temple Mount, where God's house is. I think these two mountains represent the two biggest barriers that stand in the way of the kingdom of heaven breaking into people's lives and breaking out into our world. Herodium, that mountain represents worldliness. Worldliness is building castles on a big hill and saying to the world, look at me. Look at how strong I am. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how big my life is. And see, it's this, it's this worldliness that, that causes us to just get so sidetracked and to seek the things of this world, things like being on top and, and having more and being the best and living as large as we can in this world. And yet the gospel of the kingdom is a complete antithesis to this. It's about being the least. It's about becoming small. It's about giving our life away. So if that mountain represents the world, the Temple Mount represents religion, religion where we have all the forms and the rituals, the traditions, we go through the motions, we, we learn how to dress the part, we learn how to talk the part, we, we learn how to look the part, but in the end, religion is empty on the inside because it's completely absent of the presence of God. And I think these two mountains, the mountains of religion and the mountains of worldliness, are the greatest threats to the kingdom of God. I mean, just look around at our world today. They don't stand as just some little mounds or hills, but they are these huge mountains that consume our world, our culture, our schools, even our churches, our families, our own hearts, our own lives, and they keep us from God. And here's Jesus' exhortation. Pray. Pray those mountains into the sea. In fact, maybe the most significant thing that that we can do in our world, for our world, is to pray. Prayer is the way that we access the power of God, the presence of God in our lives. It's the way that we fill ourselves with God. It's the way we walk with God. It's the way that we live as a temple in our world to bring God's awesome Shekinah presence. And Jesus does not end here in verse 25. Now he talks about forgiveness. Not only are we to be houses of prayer, but we are also to be, as God's temple, houses of forgiveness. And that's what happened at a a temple. It's a place of forgiveness. Are you a temple? Are we a temple? I mean, how 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 do you respond when someone wrongs you or mistreats you or slanders you or does some sort of injustice to you? Are you a temple? Are you a place of forgiveness? 
Or do you just get angry? Do you get bitter? Do you become critical and judgmental? Are you someone that needs to take revenge, pay people back for what they did to you? Are you always kind of in your mind thinking of ways uh, of how to punish people that, that, that have wronged you? Do, you? do you bring about revenge? Are you someone right now who harbors grudges? I mean, this is so how our world is, but, but sadly, even many Christians are, are, are this way as well. Have you ever thought about what forgiveness is and, and probably why we don't do it? You know, what was needed at the temple for, for forgiveness to actually take place? There, there needed to be a sacrifice. And this is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that all genuine forgiveness entails suffering because anyone who forgives will in some way suffer as they bear the perpetrator's sins. This is why forgiveness is so Hard, it's so costly, why, why, why it hurts. And, and here's the bottom line. When, when someone hurts us, injures us, we basically have two options. We can either pay back by making the offender suffer or we can choose to suffer. Because when we truly forgive, what we're actually doing is we are absorbing that person's debt into ourselves. We're taking the cost of their offense completely upon ourselves instead of taking it out on them. And that hurts. But isn't this God? Do you see how much it hurt God to forgive hanging on that cross, crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's he doing? He's absorbing our debt. He's taking upon himself everything that we deserve. And see, when, when, when we see God in Christ on the cross doing this and then also see how great our sin is and how Jesus just bore it, how as the true fig tree, he became cursed. He took the curse of all our sin. He was withered to the roots for us so that we could be forgiven, washed, made clean, made whole. And see, when you know that, and that burns in you, that gives you the power to forgive. Because the one who's forgiven much, says Jesus, is the one who loves much, and the one who loves much is the one who forgives much. And see, as God's temple here on, on this earth, we are to go around offering the forgiveness that Christ offered to us, to people who have hurt us and mistreated us. We are to be a place of radical forgiveness. And the question is, are we? Are you? Is there a person you need to name this morning? And then go and forgive. And you know that in these last three verses, Jesus just laid out two of the most powerful things a person can do in this world. Pray and forgive. In fact, if you want to leave a legacy... You want to live a powerful 
life and, and have a life that bears fruit. Let your life be consumed with these two things. Is your life bearing fruit? This kind of fruit? Let me take this back to the fig tree. Jesus came to that fig tree so hungry, hungry for fruit. And our world is hungry. Our world is hungry for God. It's hungry for a place where God lives, where his presence is so real. Our world longs for a place where it can go and be forgiven and be made whole. We are the fig tree. We are the temple of God. And the only way that we can be this tree that bears this kind of fruit, our roots must, must, must go deep into God. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his holy place. God, just cause our hearts to long for you and to love you and to seek you. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.